Look on me well, for she who did me beguile, whose face if thou desire to see, turn up the leaf, and that is she. Hi, I'm Alexis And. And I'm Ian McInnes. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. So, Ian, we're doing something a little different in this episode. We're going to talk to two different guests, each talking about an unusual manuscript, one from the Middle Ages and one from the Renaissance. What brings these two manuscripts together is that they both bring up some ideas that have been floating around in a lot of our discussions about Fantastic Beasts so far. So if you've been listening to any of our previous episodes, you'll know that we often end up talking about the way in which Fantastic Beasts blur boundaries between categories, not just between different animals, but also between humans and non-human animals, you know, the manticore. So that means that Fantastic Beasts are great for thinking about how categories get created in the first place. And we'll need two concepts today to sort of deal with this material. I want to start by explaining them. And um, those two concepts are animality and, here it comes, tranimality. Ian, can you tell us a little bit about animality? I'm so glad you gave us the easy one, the one that is, in fact, a just a regular word, right? So like the word animality by itself just means the quality of being an animal. But we often use animality to mean the animal as a moral category. Uh, and it's a moral category that's opposite to the human, right? So you have the animal and the human. If you put it simply, being human is good, being animal is bad. So treating a person as an animal or calling them an animal is dehumanizing and dehumanizing is bad. This is a binary opposition where you have human and animal at the opposite ends of a binary, and it's been around for ages, and it's really still here. Biology doesn't erase it. So you can believe that humans are animals, and I hope you do. I know you do, Alexa. Uh, you can love animals, and I hope you do, and I know you do, Alexa. But you still probably think that dehumanizing is bad because those moral categories are still with us. And today's episode is going to give us a window into the their construction, sort of the construction of that category. All right. Well, what about tranimality, Alexa? What's up with that? Well, that one's a bit harder, actually, because it's a completely made up word, tranimality. But basically, it's a specific kind of animality that has to do with sex and gender. So animals have sex in that they can be male or female, but technically they don't have gender because gender is a human cultural construct. And having gender is actually, you know, explicitly connected to being human. Having gender kind of makes you human. A good way to show this is by thinking about pronouns. So there's been a lot of talk um, recently, we're feeling the need for a gender-neutral pronoun, and the consensus seems to be, in English at least, that we can use they. But English already had a perfectly good gender-neutral pronoun, you know, it. 
nobody wants to be called it. And why? Because it is for non-human beings. Animals can be an it, but most of us humans would be offended to be called it. And I want to add here that, you know, if you love animals, especially if you have pets in your house, it's quite unlikely that you call them it, right? Like your beloved dog or cat is usually he or she. And why why would we be offended by it? Because humanity and animality, again, are moral categories. So around 15 years ago, people who were trans or non-binary realized that the gender-based discrimination they were suffering was really about kind of putting them in a non-human category or dehumanizing them. So they created a specific style of drag performance, actually, in which the costume has animal elements, and they called themselves tranimals. Wait, doesn't that just make things worse? (laughs) Well, it was a way of calling attention to the problem, but also pushing back against it, fighting it, by leaning into the concept and satirically adopting that idea of animality. You know, the old sort of like, oh, you think I'm an animal? I'll show you an animal. (laughs) In any case, the term has stuck around, this specific kind of animality directed at uh, gender fluidity. So in any case, the term has stuck around for the specific kind of animality that's directed at gender fluidity and for a playful way of fighting back against stereotypes and discrimination. So today's episode is also going to give us a historical window into how that functions in the past as well. All right, so here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to hear from the fantastic medieval historian, Asa Mittman, on a manuscript that is about the quasi-human or the subhuman, or what medieval writers would have called monsters. And then we're going to hear from the amazing early modern scholar, Holly Dugan, on an interactive illustrated Renaissance manuscript that allows readers to morph characters from male to female and from human to animal and back again, all through fantastical beasts. And I I will say that we did, we recorded these two interviews separately. So today, Ian, we have another fantastic guest. It's uh, Dr. Asa Mittman from California State University, Chico. He's a professor of art history and the author of a book called Medieval Monsters, which he co-authored with Sherry Lindquist. And it's really just such a great resource for anyone who is interested in Medieval Cryptozoology. Welcome, Asa. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So today we're talking about tranimals and tranimality and all kinds of sort of unexpected hybrid beings. And I've always been super fascinated by the hybrid beings, I'm going to call them, I'm not sure if they're beasts or humans, um, that you've talked a lot about in terms of the the old English text, The Wonders of the East. Could you tell us a little bit about this text and and the hybridity that it celebrates? Sure, I would be happy to. Uh, So it's a fascinating text. It's pretty brief. even fully illustrated, uh, it takes up about 15 pages of a manuscript, you know, and it is um, based on earlier writings that 
can be traced back through uh, ancient Roman sources like Herod um, Pliny and then ancient Greeks behind him like Herodotus and Stesius and Megasthenes, two guys who actually did go to um, the east, uh, one to India and one to Persia, where they both had sort of official court appointments. And so there, there are these old texts that have been passed on and on and on. But the, um, the Wonders of the East strips out all the kind of narrative framing. And actually, one of the things I love about it is it starts sort of midstream. So the first line of it is, and there's another place. <laughs> um, and so you're just like thrown in straight into the middle of this text. And it, it starts out um, kind of uh, maybe a little bit gently. The first couple of wonders are uh, some some dangerous chickens, really, really dangerous chickens. They're deadly. Um, and then some big sheep. Um, but very soon after that, we start getting much more sort of exciting and baroque creatures. There are the cynocephali, um, which the old English version of the text calls hundegas, which means half hounds. Um, cynocephali means dog-headed in Greek. So these are people, presumably, but with dogs' heads. There are uh, women with um, uh, horses' hooves and uh, long manes um, that run down their backs. Um, and, and other such hybrids. There are also beings in that that are sort of creatures of excess and lack. So like giant people and tiny people and people who have one leg instead of two or one eye instead of two and so on, um, which appear in a number of these kinds of texts. But I actually admit I'm generally most interested in these hybrid ones. And one of the things that characterizes them, I think is really essential to how this branch of these texts is working anyway, is that they are reproducing groups. Uh, and in fact, some of the wonders tell us specifically how they reproduce. Uh, so there's one group that we learn travels to India on ships when it's time to reproduce. And so they're not sort of one-off oddities. They're not prodigal births, like become very popular in the Renaissance where, you know, oh, the two-headed cow was born and they called Albert Dur to go make a print of it right away, you know. Um, they weren't unexpected results from some strange either biological or mystical or divine force, nor are they the chance results of unexpected pairings, which we will see in other contexts in the Middle Ages. So like a woman who has uh, intercourse with an animal and then produces a creature which is half human and half whatever that animal is. So these are replicating, reproducing, and in some cases, culture-bearing uh, beings that are maybe human and maybe not, but very helpful points of comparison for the human reader, uh, you know, tucked away back at home in England or wherever they happen to be reading one of these texts. So there's, a, there's we've noticed a lot of uh, what we've been calling hybridity in uh, representation of, of fantastic creatures, or at least the ones that we think of as particularly fantastic. Although it's not clear that that audiences at the time would have seen them as necessarily hybrid, mm. um, but but we you know we see them as sort of having different parts. But it seems like what you're talking about, which is the sort of the human animal hybrid specifically, and one that's not accidental, but you know sort of a a species, right? A, you know, like an, a a self-contained reproducing uh, group. Was that perceived as sort of categorically different from, say, a uh, fantastical creature that? amalgamated parts of different kinds of animals. Well, uh, one of the things that I find really interesting, so the one of these is, uh, it's this brief text 
There's not a ton there, but what's there is so persistently strange and interesting. One of the things that really stands out to me is a subtlety of phrasing that shows up in some of these. So for example, there are uh, creatures called onocentaurs, which is a half person, half ass, rather than a half person, half horse. But what the texts say about these is that they are like a person above the waist and shaped like an ass below the waist, which is different than saying they have a top half, which is a person and a bottom half, which is an animal, mm -hmm. right? They look like that is not the same thing as saying they are that. So do they mean to say this is some kind of hybrid being or do they mean to say this is a being who is you know, sort of marvelous and can be understood via reference points we are already familiar with, right? So there's this really interesting kind of push and pull in a lot of these texts that say, the other side of the world is filled with the most remarkable strangeness you could possibly imagine. Maybe you can't even believe this, but it also looks exactly like everything you're familiar with. Um, <laughs> and I think that's a really key tension that we see in quite a lot of these. Uh, in fact, um, the, the dangerous chickens that I mentioned, which people call the burning hens, if anybody touches them, they immediately burn up those people's bodies. Um, the text says, these are red hens that look just like the red hens among us. So again, like they look exactly like regular chickens, which by the way, makes them much more dangerous because if you came across them, you wouldn't be able to distinguish them from you know, the perfectly <laughs> harmless chickens back home. And so there's a, a lot of the, the text is about sort of creating a collective audience, making the reader part of a community. It's a lot of these people are among us called this, and this looks like the chickens among us. Uh, so it keeps sort of drawing the reader into a kind of complicity with itself, which we may or may not wish to join it in. I mean, it does include as one of these monstrous groups, dark-skinned people from Africa, you know? And so we might not be comfortable being part of the collective we that is uh, demonizing, othering, monsterizing, people who are completely normal human beings. So, uh, but it's a powerful rhetorical device to do this, to rope us in with it. That's so fascinating that you mentioned that particular category of wonder, which is just people with a different skin tone from your average old English speaker, I guess. Though we do because... know that there were Africans in early medieval England. Oh, sure. Um, in oh, sure. <laughs> including, um, a few bishops. So mm. worth noting, you know, this this was not a phenomenon totally unfamiliar or alien to these audiences, presumably. Right. And that sort of links us back to what um, what we were talking about in terms of Renaissance tranimals or this this flip book manuscript that allows you to sort of uh, imagine otherness from a point from a departure point, which is, you know, something normal quote unquote, normal, normative, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, and, and it leads me to kind of think about who was the audience for this illustrated text and how many mm -hmm. copies of this illustrated text e exist as a kind of testament to its audience. Uh, well, okay, so good question. To a certain degree, we don't know. Uh, but there are three surviving copies of this particular batch of text, all three of them illustrated. The earliest mm. one is bound with Beowulf uh, and therefore is in 
the most famous manuscript maybe from the period, or at least the most famous literary manuscript from the period. Um, and so uh, that text, that manuscript has within it uh, Beowulf, which is a tale of heroes fighting monsters. Uh, this text, which is about a whole bunch of kind of monstrous beings. Um, Judith and Holofernes, which is uh, an apocryphal uh, Jewish legend about a Jewish uh, heroine who defeats the evil Philistine ruler. The letter of Alexander to um, his teacher Aristotle about his journeys in the East, where he encounters other beings very similar to some of those in uh, the Wonders of the East, uh, and so on. So it is a, a, a text that has at least been characterized as being consumed with monstrosity in one way or another. Uh, the second iteration of this text is maybe 50 years later, so about about 1,000 and then about 1025 or 1050, um, is a a, a compendium, a compilation manuscript that's filled with a bunch of scientific kinds of texts. There's uh, a handful of maps in it. There's a way, the, the ways that they figured out to calculate the correct date of Easter, a, I believe, a section of Bede's book about how time itself works. And so, you know, these are all, in essence, scientific investigations. That version is in Old English and in Latin, so it's a bilingual version. There's paragraph of one, paragraph of the other, paragraph of one, paragraph of the other. And then the third iteration, which almost certainly was copied from the second one, when the second one was on loan to Battle Abbey, which is the abbey right where the Battle of Hastings occurred. Um, that one is only in Latin. And incidentally, each of these manuscripts has a couple of more added to it, a couple of more of wonders that appear in it. So it, it grows a little bit and its language shifts over time. Those shifts in language may indicate a shift in audience. Who's going to want a text in Old English? Well, that's someone who's probably not reading in Latin. Um, I mean, a text made around 1000 in England almost certainly had to be made in monastic context. So by monks or nuns, um, that, that seems nearly certain. Um, but they did produce texts that were intended with lay audiences in mind. And that text, I mean, it's not some kind of overtly religious manuscript. Beowulf is not, The Wonders of the East are not, The Letter of Alexander is not. Now they're all subsumed into a, a Christian worldview without any question that sees a kind of normativity um, descending from Adam, you know, being created in God's image, right? And uh, that sees difference not as the splendor of human variety, but as deviation from a correct template human. So these are laden with ideological views, but they're not church books per se, right? They're not um, gospel texts. They're not the book of the Psalms. They're not a breviary in the manual for monks to work through their liturgical day and week and year and so on. So they certainly, uh, can be integrated into a, an explicitly religious worldview, but they are not church books per se. They're not ones that were useful for liturgy, for prayer, for um, monastic contemplation and devotion. So thinking about monstra, I mean, any text that's interested in monstrosity is in some ways interested in the relationship between self and other. And when we come to those terms, we, we tend to use things like, like norm, norming or normal and deviation or, uh, uh, you know, as a, as a way of talking about that. But those, those terms themselves are not really medieval 
terms, is there a difference between uh, the way these texts kind of develop the relationship between self and other um, and, and the idea of the monstrous that is different from our uh, kind of statistical approach? You know, when you talk about norm, norm, a norm is a statistical term after all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, so two thoughts about that. First, on you know modern usage of these terms, right? What we tend to refer to as quote normal or a norm tends to be exceedingly uncommon. Uh, so the medieval kind of normate position that you know, so the normate I like this term rather than the normal because normate is like the posi- what the position of power insists is the correct way to be, which may or may not be common, right? And so you know in early medieval Europe, this would be, you know, European, white, Christian, male, able-bodied, educated, uh, noble. Well, how much of Europe was that? Right? (laughs) That's a minute fraction of the population of Europe. Uh, Oh, also should say free, because there were people who'd fit all of that, except for the wealth portion, and yet be enslaved, right? So the normate is rarely common. Right. So when we say normal, we often mean like that's just the standard kind of common thing, but it isn't. It's the standard setting groups idea of what common should be. Okay. Look at medieval context. What did they say? They didn't use the term monster a whole lot. Um, You know, there's a book called the Liber Monstrorum, which means book of monsters, like a ninth century text, I think. Um, But more often they used wonder or marvel. Uh, Wonder comes from the old English wundor which means wonder, um, and Marvel uh, comes via Old French. Um, and they're used kind of synonymously. So the Old English version of the Wonders of the East, Wonders, the Latin version is often called the Marvels of the East, um, just to indicate a slight distinction in the framing. But what fascinates me about those terms in comparison to terms like self and other normal and deviation or something is that both of them are actually affective responses to phenomena. So and, and it, not a negative necessarily. Well, not I mean, necessarily, those are, those no. Those are positive responses. Amongst the wonders are things like 100-foot-long gems. Like, that sounds okay to me, right? They're, they're, they're not all, yeah, clearly problematic, pernicious in any way. Um, so they are, if I may say, they're not ontological descriptions. They don't speak about the fundamental essential nature of these beings. They are relational. They describe a response to those beings. Uh, and so how do you know something is a wonder? It's when it evokes in you the feeling of wonder. How do you know that something is a marvel? It, if it causes you to marvel at it, right? Uh, so it is only a relationship, not a state of being. And I tend to think that monster actually is one of these terms. We just don't have the correct parts of speech to make that clear. You can't monster at something, in essence. But that's what I would argue we are doing. Um, that uh, uh, we are, if we were to claim something a monster, it is because of the relationship that we are having with it, the emotions that we experience in response to it. Nothing is on its own inherently a monster, a wonder, a marvel, and other so-called. Um, these are all only interactions that we can have with other beings. And so, you know, uh, we are all each other's monsters, etc. Um, otherness... Does that mean that, that, that beauty is uh, monstrous? Well, I guess it means that uh, beauty functions arguably the same way, 
right? Mm -hmm. That it's the same type of category, that it's an interaction, it's a relationship, right? I mean, we can wonder or marvel at beauty just as well as we can wonder and marvel at strangeness or horror. Um, they're all uh, uh, the same kinds of affective categories rather than fundamental categories of the nature of being. You know, it's so interesting as you're as you're talking about this idea of a kind of interiority of the marvel. That is to say, like a thing is a marvel because you experience a sense of wonder, a sense of mm -hmm. the marvelous looking at it, or a sense of the monstrous looking at it. And I it it brought to mind for me this. Um, series of works by the Spanish artist Francisco Goya, you know, the sleep of reason produces mm -hmm. monsters. This idea that reason is actually in, in, in the enlightenment is actually an imaginative process. Um, and so the reasonable and the rational are, are produced not through some kind of external truthiness to, <laughs> to borrow a, a phrase from Stephen Colbert, but, but mm -hmm. rather through a kind of work of the imagination and, and this is a pre-enlightenment world in which the sort of the sleep of reason is, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, we have, we're fine with that. Um, the, the imagination is an incredibly powerful force in medieval and early modern thinking. And, and I think we've encountered this again and again, as we've investigated different beasts, both very humble beasts like, you know, rodents and, and very, marvelous beasts like manticores um but but always there's this sense of the kind of hidden and emotional uh, meaning of these creatures i wonder whether emotion is a meaning right it's an experience right and i think you know i have this conversation with my students a lot who are like but what does the symbol mean and i'm like no 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 it's not actually <laughs> it doesn't work that way like you know they have this idea this sort of uh, pared down idea this of of Panofskian, you know, disguised symbolism. Like, okay, so this figure equals that, and that figure equals the other thing. Which you put a plus sign in the middle, you equals, and that means God is good or whatever. Like, that, I don't think that these things that are wondrous are actually doing that. Right? They're causing us to have a, a relationship and experience with them, um, rather than constructing some kind of fixed, predetermined meaning. Oh yeah, I they, mean, I blame I blame that on Dan Brown entirely because mm. you know he created this thing, you know, this character who's a Harvard symbologist. Right, um, a and, term that does in not symbology, exist. Symbology, there's like yeah. a very you know one to one relation. In thinking about how people would have approached these kind of beings, one of the things that uh, seems very important to me is again, since these are texts made by and for Christians with a Christian ideology kind of baked into them from the start. The basic notion that is quite prevalent in medieval thought that the world exists as an interpretive structure for us. It exists in order to reveal, uh, you know, God's plan for humanity. Um, uh, I think it's St. Jerome who says the earth is our great book. And what he means by that is the earth functions analogously to the Bible. So if you think of the way that people were trained to read the Bible, drawing out from every word within it uh, the, the most vital sustenance of their kind of spiritual lives, what he's saying is the world does that too. And so you can look at the rat and the eagle and the manticore and chew them over through the same ruminative process uh, that you would bring to 
the book of the Psalms, which was the sort of backbone of monastic prayer. And so what that does is it creates an idea that these beings at which we might wonder exist not for themselves, but for our interpretive exercise upon them. And this has really significant consequences for actual living people. Uh, it is the same ideology that underlies quite a lot of medieval anti-Semitism. Uh, so Augustine of Hippo, who is like the architect of Christianity as a religion, right? You can't really overplay his significance in the development of the religion. Um, when, when is uh, Augustine? Late fourth into fifth century, if I'm remembering off the top of my head. Yeah, really, er, very early. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he's a Roman polytheist convert who has the zeal of new converting. Um, but he uh, he reifies the existence of monsters, which he says are there for us. He says, um, you know, why, why, why is there a dog's head in a human body and things like that that seem like they defy the laws of nature? They exist because God is teaching us something. He is teaching us that the laws of nature don't apply to him. He's the creator of these laws. He's outside these laws. And so he is using this to teach us that the laws of nature don't apply. And so Augustine says, this is his real worry here. This is why it's okay. Everything's gonna be fine at the general resurrection when Christ is supposed to raise all the dead bodies and put the souls back into them, even though all of those dead bodies aren't all still here. The earliest of Christians thought that like the second coming was going to be like on Tuesday at noon. So they weren't worried about this. They start practicing inhumation, so burying bodies whole rather than cremating, so that the body is still there for the soul to go back into. If you cremate it, where's the body? Well, by this point, all of the early martyrs' bodies are gone. The apostles' bodies are gone. And then what about all the other good Christians who died at sea or were torn apart by wild animals. This is what Augustine explains he's worried about. And he says, monsters, that's what they're there for, to show us that God can do whatever he wants and nothing constrains him. So <laughs> the bodies will be there because he said so. But he also says that Jews exist only for Christian use, that they should be kept alive and in a constant state of subjugation because through their suffering, they will demonstrate the truth of the Christian message. And so this is wow. a parallel structure whereby it's one thing to say, oh, these dog-headed people, they exist to teach us something. But it's another thing to say, oh, and also the Jews in Europe exist just to teach Christians something. And there are, of course, porous overlaps in these, the so-called real and the so-called imaginary, because Christians argued many times that um, the dog-headed, fire-breathing, person-eating giants were regular features of Muslim armies. Uh, and so we can't really look at that and be like, oh, but that's just fun fantasy because those were also placed onto real people. And it is worth mentioning, which seems to be lost so often in these discussions, that all of these people, the headless giants and the dog-headed people and the ass centaurs and all the rest, these are purported to be the actual inhabitants of Africa and Asia. And so this sets up a worldview whereby the peoples of those places are monstrous, maybe wondrous, but certainly not like the European normate, which is consuming these texts for whatever purpose that might be, edification, titillation, entertainment, contemplation. And so we see that medieval fantastic beasts or beings are 
kind of in in their way still with us today because the the very sort of fundament of institutionalized racism is this ideology of a sort of non-human characteristic to people who don't who don't conform to what what you're calling the normate you know so fascinating stuff thank you so much yeah Yeah, my pleasure i could agree animality statement but it's been lovely talking with you um right thank you thank you thank you for coming okay thanks asa thank you okay bye-bye Wow, Asa really gave us a lot to think about in terms of the significance of the monstrous or the potential sort of category-disrupting nature of the monstrous and also the ways in which monstrosity is kind of linked to how we talk about normative categories like race or gender it's kind of a, a a public, meaningful document in in so many ways, and different, I think, than the what we're going to get next, which is a much more personal, quiet, playful document that was seen by few. Yes, and that kind of relates to what we talked about in the opening, you know, in terms of this idea of appropriating or, or claiming the sort of negative rhetoric about monstrosity or animality, and then making it a tool for exploration and creativity and fun as the Tranimal drag shows do. So be prepared for a Renaissance Tranimal drag show. Yay, drag shows! Coming right up. Today, we have a guest. Um, Our guest, um, we're super excited about our guest. Holly Dugan is an associate professor at George Washington University uh, who works in sensory history. Uh, She has an amazing book on the history of perfume out, but also animal studies, gender, sexuality, embodiment, and all sorts of early modern material material culture and, and cultural studies. She's working on some uh, book projects now, uh, another one on the senses, uh, and then one that will be particularly relevant to our listeners on the role of animal actors from the Renaissance to the modern era. Today, though, um, Holly's going to be talking to us about a particular manuscript in the British Library, which she has studied extensively and which is really an unusual, almost an astonishing manuscript. So welcome, Holly. We're so excited to have you with us. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I can't wait to hear you talk a little bit more about this manuscript. I wonder if you could just sort of begin by describing it for us. Sure. Yeah, it's really... um... Tremendous. And I've been a bit obsessed with it now for quite some time. Um, So I'm really excited to chat with you about it. It's the British Library's Additional Manuscript 57312. And that catalog number does not do it justice. Um, It's a mid-17th century manuscript that's designed to be played with, manipulated, and maneuvered, as well as read. And it's made by folding a single piece of vellum, which is 64 centimeters by 24 centimeters or 25 inches by 11 inches, kind of double the A3 paper size, if you're familiar with those formats. Um, It's a single piece of vellum folded into eight pleats, each with movable flaps at the top and bottom. 
and it stages eight linked transformations, begins with Adam, Eve, transforming into a siren. Then it begins with Angus, Draco, Serpent, so a series of snake-like transformations. Testudo, Cadus, Dolphin, so marine life, dolphins, turtles, whales. Uh, Leo, Grips, Aquila, so lions and eagles, noble creatures. Uh, Woeful Knight, Accor, Influences, and Crumena, so it has human actors in it. Amantacora, Leo, and Simeoprasia, so mystical beasts as well as um, you know, real actors animals like monkeys, Alamia, Sphinx, and Simeocalatrixa, and then Venator, Acteon, and Charis. And so it really is quite stunning in the range of bodies and transformations that it imagines. And I think its design is so striking. So the vellum is integral to not just its playability, but also its pliability. And I think the creator of the manuscript uh, was invested in that animality um, in order to create these visually stunning hybrid creatures. So let me ask you, the manuscript is folded. It's a single piece of vellum that has been mm -hmm. uh, folded in a, well, like you said, it's like concertina style, right? So sort yes. of up and down, up and down. Like accordion pleats. Mm -hmm. Accordion pleats. And then each, uh, each one also has has been the, the vellum must have been cut so that there are two flaps that fold down in the front of each one so you yeah, can so, fold the yes. flap up or down or fold the bottom flap up or down and that gives you i guess so you've got an image on the bottom and then an image on the tops but you can fold either thing down so each side could give you four different possibilities right yes exactly although it's usually cataloged as only staging three possibilities but it's that fourth one that I think really elevates this manuscript into something quite unique and interesting. Um, and that is, you know, part of what interests me in it is its uniqueness, but also how we access it and how we describe it so that others can access it. And so that fourth possibility is really important. Um, I like to think of it as in some ways linked to um, those fortune tellers that I know my children love to make still, where it's an, a complicated design that allows you to operate it quite uh, simply and, and it has a lot of fun and delight embedded in it. When you see it, it's, it's visually striking and it's, it's clear that it's, it's meant to be interacted with. What do we know about the author or the maker maybe is a better word for yeah. the, the creator of this work? You know, it's so interesting because, I mean, on the, on the face of it is, you know, not much, really very little. And then also, um, once we start thinking about the design features of the manuscript, I found that, you know, we could, you know, we, we actually know quite a lot as well. So we don't know the things that I think we normally want to know about historical actors, who they were, what their class status was, where they lived, what they cared about. Um, you know, who are their social affordances and their political views. Um, but thinking about how the object was made starts to reveal some clues or cues about that. Uh, for example, the manuscript draws extensively on two source materials. And so we know that uh, 
Um, it was likely created after 1658, which is the, the latest of the two source materials. So we know it's mid to late 17th century. Um, we know that this is someone who is familiar with two very different kinds of educational materials because of those source materials. One is a, a Puritan instructional um, piece of ephemera, and the other is an encyclopedic history of animals, a bestiary in the 17th century tradition. So we know that this person had access to learning um, and, and highly specialized um, printed materials related to that. Um, we also know he probably had money. I'm using the he, although we don't know that, although, you know, again, um, but, but, but the, the, that one at this point in time in the mid 17th century for a manuscript is an expensive choice, right? Paper is available and this creator decided to choose to use vellum, which I think is important, as I said, because of the pliability. So we know that, you know, this is someone who um, had access to really you know, expensive artistic materials. Um, and we also know that this is someone who's gifted uh, with color and design. Um, that, you know, I've tried to recreate this manuscript as a handout for my students, and I can tell you how, how much respect I've learned to have for this creator and it's the design principles of this manuscript. But it's actually quite challenging when you are designing something that, especially um, by hand, in order to have it match up and fold in the way that it needs to in order for the story to to, to operate for the object to operate the way it's designed. And so um, this is someone who I think has an artistic mentality. To make the design work, the artist had to actually be envisioning all the, all the possibilities because you have to move each flap so that the images are gonna match up properly, which means even if the, you know, there's reported to be three, you know, there's three options for each, but there's a fourth option that you mentioned, the artist needs to have seen that fourth option in order to be able to draw it correctly. Exactly. Uh, and so could you yeah. tell us what the fourth option is, maybe by looking at, I don't know, any one of the the panels yeah. and describe like what are the what are the three that are sort of the authorized yeah. expected and then what is the fourth yeah. unexpected one? So the, the manuscript begins kind of predictably with this biblical story of origins. We have a first series of transformation as Adam, Eve, Siren. Um, and you know as the introductory um, snippet that I provided suggests, you know, Adam begins by with an imperative to the reader to look at him and then look at she who did beguile him. So staging that next transformation towards Eve, right? So you lift, lift up Adam's head and instead you have Adam's body now with Eve's head. Um, and then if you remove Adam's body, we have the final transformation, which shows a monstrosity, a feminine monstrosity in which Eve's now head turns into a siren or mermaid's body. So you have the fishtail at the bottom. Um, and that's where the manuscript sort of ends with the narrative imperative of what the reader should look at. But of course, there's a fourth transformation. You could put Adam's head onto the siren's tail and have a merman just as easily as you have um, a siren figure. And, you know, the manuscript, as you're manipulating it and you're going on to the next transformation, kind of does that on its own. It flops around, it's pliable, it's movable, um, and it has an agency of its own. And so even though there is this moral arc that the narrative is suggesting, you know, quite forcefully through the imperative to look at this, she who did beguile me, um, 
you know, the materiality of the object subverts that in really fascinating ways. And that's where it begins. And then it just goes weirder from there. It really um, starts to stage, you know, again, it, it becomes unclear what the link transformations are. Are they discrete or are we meant to be mapping them across? Um, and if so, you know, what are we making of some of these transformations? They make sense. Like we have the marine cluster of a turtle transforming into a whale, transforming into a dolphin, right? They're all grouped in terms of what we might describe as habitat. Um, but others are less clear, especially when um, you, you sort of have the manticora transforming into a lion, and that sort of certainly emphasizes nobility, but then it also transforms into a monkey at the end. And what the meaning of those transformations are, you know, again, the, the narrative provides one way of understanding it, but it doesn't quite logically add up. And um, there's no explanation for why these eight link transformations are connected. Um, one thing I'll note is that all the images are derivative. They all come from one of, you know, either of these two sources. The encyclopedia would, that's mentioned, is that Topsil's History yes, of Warfare to Beasts? Yes, that's an old favorite of ours now, so. I do <laughs> yes. love it. And I want to be clear, the, the second edition, the 1658 edition, um, because it, it has um, the marine life and um, the dragons, which are not in their original edition. So that was partly super fun for me because I could start to connect its history. You know, I, 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 I first encountered this a really long time ago, and I... Remember the utter <laughs> delight and surprise when it was brought out to me. It was described as a love token and game. And, you know, when I opened it up, it was, and this is rare, I, I, I hesitate to say this because, you know, our, so much of archival research is laborious and boring. Um, and this is one of those, you know, discovery stories that we are, are told to be suspicious of where it's just shock and awe and delight at like finding, encountering something so weird. This manuscript is indeed unique, separate from its medieval ancillaries um, and also separate from other objects that are like it, even including these two print traditions that it participates in. And I really think that's the theoretical framework of Tranimality. I think there is something utterly unique about this and the way in which this creator stages animal transformations as a compelling narrative for human readers, a realm of possibility um, that supersedes uh, these two different kinds of print traditions that the author or creator was drawing on. One is Puritan moral values and the other is an encyclopedic cataloging of all the world's creatures. Um, there's something about this iteration that transforms those disciplinary um, invectives into something utterly delightful and weird and, you know, doesn't kind of fit in any other natural history, any kind of social history. It's its, you, it's, its own thing. Yeah, completely. One of the source materials is a Puritan uh, moral treatise that's designed to instruct children on what a moral life should look like. So it warns against avarice, it warns against monstrosity, it uses animality as a kind of warning to those who don't heed its lesson in what a moral life looks like. 
um, it devolves into a kind of monstrous animality. Um, and so you can see really clearly the political stakes of animality, even in one of the source materials for this. Animality acknowledges those political realities, um, but also sees potential in the monstrosity that's staged as abhorrent in some of these social um, instructive devices. You know, I, the, the theory about tranimality and tranimals of why trans theorists see potential in this is that it's not a simple equation of simply of humans imagining themselves as animals. It's a recognition that science, the interface of science and humanity can also produce incredible harm on animal bodies um, and on human ones as well. But it was only when I got the term tranimal uh, when I read that theory, when I saw what trans theorists were doing with it, when I saw what trans performers were doing with it, that I realized, oh, there's there's a history for this longing. There's a history for this kind of creative expression. You know, this is a animal made thing, so you know it's it's made through vellum, so the the harm is there uh, to the creature. Um, but there's also that potential for artistic expression and transformation from human identified actors you know, who are engaging with it. I think that's so rich, Holly. I don't even know which, you know, sort of entry point I want to choose, but you sort of wrapped up there by talking about parchment and the real harm done to mm -hmm. real animals. I think in some ways, this concept of a tranimal, it's really resonating for me because the medieval view of a parchment codex and and the medieval view of animals indeed as Ian and I continually return to this point medieval books in a way are understood as living objects partly because they are created from death there's a lot of discussion in my field in medieval manuscript studies about the animality of these books and and the animacy of these yeah. books too. That is the fact that they move and they they perform and they act and they they interact. And so books in a way become a kind of real fantastic beast. What is it like to sit there with this manuscript yeah. and interact with it for yeah. you as a scholar? Well, there's so much to say there. I think, you know, animality I think is really important to what you're saying because I think animality is so often weaponized against humans that to think about the political affordances between animal skin and what you're describing, the violence that would be embedded in something, an archive of flesh, of, you know, and, and there are many kinds of archives of flesh, of human flesh, of, you know, chattel slavery, of, um, you know, economic degradation, of sexual trauma, all of these ways in which our archive sources are made from archives of flesh and encapsulate human histories of violence, I think animality um, can become really hard to think about because the human scale of violence contained in our archives is so massive and so under-theorized that to talk about animal harm can feel like it's participating in that same way in which animality is so often weaponized in political discourse against certain class of people so that, you know, in order to justify and deny their human and legal rights. For me, I think tranimality is a way of seeing an, a different kind of 
affordance between humanity and animality. And that is not shying away from what you described as the disgust um, at the harms that are embedded in these archival sources. But they also are rooted in what I keep hoping for, what I find often in teaching and I sometimes find in the archive as well, which is these this hopeful uh, creative expression that can somehow surpass that history of harm and transform it into something beautiful and meaningful to, to students now who are seeking to figure out new ways of expressing gender and sexuality uh, in, in creative and politically important ways. This object has transformed how I interact with Topsil. I think when I first started working in animal studies, I, you know, had the same sort of sense of Topsil being this incredible resource for understanding, um, you know, animal history. And um, what I couldn't see was some of the harm that was embedded in how the book had been used. That history of use that that is embedded in 57312 and then also in, in the edition that we have of Topsil, what we do with these archival materials and how they speak to us and how we can begin to, I think, reanimate them. I think that's a key term here, um, especially for something like 57312. All of the power and agency, I think, comes from use of encounter of, you know, of, of interacting with it. Um, and then also having that same sort of thing that it, it represents to me, which is a creative impulse to transcend institutionalized locations of harm into something like beauty or becoming a trans potentiality um, that is imagined as tranimality, that is not just as animals, but as something that can um, move beyond these categories, this impulse to sort and um, create hierarchies. The question that becomes, how do we get more people to have access uh, to this kind of encounter? I, I, that's something that I'm really interested in. Well, we'll, we'll certainly put up pictures on our, on our website, <laughs> but you're right. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it's something that it's hard to describe. It's certainly yeah. impossible to convey the, the actual look and feel of any kind of interaction with our, you know, archival yeah. material. It's always so much richer I think yeah. in person, but it's just a really fascinating, a fascinating manuscript and one that deserves to get much greater attention and, and also to make us think, you know, differently about Topsil and about moral lesson material, the kind of Puritan lessons. Mm -hmm. So well, we really appreciate been, you. Yeah. Coming on. Yeah, this it's has just been, been fantastic. Really <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. I love talking about this object. If you can tell. I just love it so much. <laughs> So weird. <laughs> and if anyone's interested in that, um, I do have a, um, I'm calling it a um, manuscript adaptation. <laughs> if you just want to sort of have a folding exercise, if you're interested in teaching this, I have created a handout that um, you could use for educational purposes so that your students can encounter um, the fun of a concertina folded animal manuscript that's amazing i may be making one over my lunch break here yeah it's really fun <laughs> it's something that's just such a great handout and immediately becomes clear what the potential is where words are failing sometimes you just need to operate it and you'll you can see it much clearer. yeah it's great yeah well thank so, you so much holly thank yeah, you thank, thank you. you this is wonderful if you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes we would love to hear from you 
Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation. 